Well, welcome to another episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast. Today we have part two of our exciting interview with Trina Robbins. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Trina, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So last time Jim and I spoke about your history in producing comics, and that dovetailed into 1985. And today, around that time in the mid-80s, we're going to start discussion of your comic history career, which kind of uh, starts around that same period of time. And uh, I think Jim's going to start this particular topic off, and we're going to talk about Women in the Comics 1985, published by Eclipse. So, Jim, take it away. Well, I just wanted to say how excited I am to do this part of it, because I think that what you've done, we all owe you a great debt for the historical work that you've done. You went in areas that nobody was doing, and you really made a tremendous difference in terms of us understanding the history of comics. And I just wanted to personally thank you for that. Thank you. I have to, small correction. I know I'm always correcting you guys. The book was called Women and the Comics because Maurice Horn had done a book previously called Women in the Comics. Uh, And it had nothing to do with women who created comics. It was all about about sexy pictures of women in comics, ah. you know, necessarily weren't even necessarily main characters, but just some babes that he would put in the picture. Right. So when we came out with women, at, we had to call it women and the comics. And when we came out with that, we actually got a letter from Maurice, a cease and desist letter, like how dare he, you know. So yeah. I challenged him to a duel, but we never it never happened. <laughs> yeah, Rick Rick Marshall told us about some dealings he had with Maurice Horn as well. So when I heard, read about that story in your biography, it, it made sense with with what I've already come to understand about about the character. Okay, so let's let's get started in in terms of this. Now, this was your first comic related book rather than comic. Is that correct? It was my first book. Period. Yes, and it's also. It would be fair to say it's the very first book on women comic creators exclusively. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The very first. And remember that the first one I co-wrote with Kat Ironwood. She right. needs to get half the credit for that first book. Absolutely. And Eclipse, Eclipse that published it also needs to get a lot of credit for being the publisher of the first book on women in comics. So could you tell us the backstory about how that book came to be, whose idea it was, who, how it got started, and how long it took to write? Details about how it came to be. Well, I was really getting sick of, of editors and publishers saying, you know, and artists, and artists, saying women didn't read comics and women had never drawn comics. And I knew that was not true. Simple as that, I knew it wasn't true. And Kat and Dean, Dean Mullaney, who was the publisher of Eclipse Comics, and Kat was the editor. She said, well, then let's do a book. And at the time, okay, this was my first book. I was still very unsure of myself. I didn't think I could do it myself. So I co-wrote it with Kat. And that's how it came about. Our, I have to say, you know, it's probably a real collector's item, but I would not use it for research because a lot of our research proved wrong. This was pre-computer days, and it was very hard to find information on women cartoonists, and a lot of the information we found was incorrect, but we didn't know it was incorrect because, like I say, it was pre-computer. So don't use it for research. 
Do you find that the internet has helped your research a lot more now than pre-internet? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, absolutely. Every, in every way, the book that I'm currently doing, that I actually finished and is coming out in the fall, I researched a lot of it through old newspapers that I got, you know, that I got electronically. Mm. Because this, was, this book is about Gladys Parker. I'll tell you more about her when you ask me. But it just so happened that the gossip columnists loved her. And they wrote about her a lot. And this is where I got most of my information. I see. So you guys were essentially almost starting from scratch in a lot of lot of this. Uh, what were the were there resource books that you did use? Uh, Horn's book or or any anybody else's? Maurice Horn's book, not ever. I mean, okay. because he didn't write about women who created comics. <laughs> yes, really, really, nobody's book. We had to go with small self published what you would today call zines. You know. In many cases, you know, mimeographed, there was a woman who, Lorraine, oh gosh, I can't think of her last name now, but she she had a kind of a fan group, I guess is what you'd have to call it, about women. It was specifically about paper dolls. But as you know, a lot of the women cartoonists drew paper dolls. So she had a lot about these early women. I got a little bit also from... Okay, there was this group in Los Angeles who were fans of illustrators, just historic illustrators. And each little small self-published thing, booklet, pamphlet, whatever you'd call it, that they put out every few months, I think, was about a different illustrator. So they did one on Neil Brinkley. And (laughs) all of their information was wrong. But we didn't know that because this was the only information we had. Huh. They even were, they were wrong about her politics. They were wrong about saying that she stayed married to the same man all her life because they divorced. They even got her hair color wrong. But wow. we didn't know this. You know, how were the writing duties divided between the two of you? Did you take certain eras or certain individuals or did you just collaborate on each chapter? Basically, we collaborated on each chapter. Oh, I would also like to say that I got a lot of my information and a lot of help from Bill Blackbeard, uh, the late Bill Blackbeard, who had the the Academy of Comic Art in San Francisco. And the Academy of Comic Art really consisted of just an entire basement crammed full of newspaper, mostly newspaper strips. And Bill was lovely. You had to phone him, and if he he could hear you leaving a message, if he wanted to talk to you, he'd pick it up. And I was very lucky because Bill liked me. Nice, um, and he helped me a lot. So he was you a know, friend of yours. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was so really he was a great guy. Now, now this this book was the illustrations were all in black and white. Is that right? Yes. Who decided which illustrations to go? Was that the editorial or was that was that a decision? I think, again, we decided together. In some cases, it was all we had. You know, all we had that was printable. And did it break down in a similar way to the way the subsequent books that, that are similar, uh, the Great Woman Cartoonist and the various versions of that, did it have that same chapter notion of starting, you know, in the very beginning and then going through to basically where you were at? They or, were or did it break down differently? 
No, they were all chronological. But after after Women and the Comics, the books that I did myself, I simply concentrated on women cartoonists and didn't talk about women who worked as editors or in offices or mm. anything like that. So this one actually talks about writers and things as well yes. as, as the artists. Yes. I see. And this one had at least had some aspect of international comics and manga and other things. Yes, we Is did. Right? Yes, we did. Uh-huh. And how was that? Was that an area that you already had some existing knowledge about, or was that a lot of, of new information coming in? I had a little bit of knowledge because I had already been to Europe and met women cartoonists and was familiar with the work of a lot of the European women. Nice. I see. And what was the reception of the book? Was it received, uh, it was received positively by mainstream oh. critics, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was actually even reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle, and they have never since then they have never reviewed any of my books, and that's my hometown. <laughs> One question I would have is: You're obviously part of of comics history yourself, as was Cat. How did y'all deal with having to write about yourselves in terms of your contribution toward the, the historical moments you're writing about? I think that. In all of my books, I have been very modest. I haven't pushed myself just because I'm writing them. I have simply included myself where it's necessary to include myself historically. Is it awkward writing about your friends and people that you were working with at the time? No, I treated everyone equally. Nice. Have you ever had any pushback from people where they didn't like how you portrayed the events? I think it was in the first book, Women and the Comics, that I left a couple of people's out by mistake. It was not on purpose. And they were kind of upset until we explained that we had not done this on purpose. I see. Okay, I think we can come back to some of this, but let's move on, Alex, to the next right. book. So, A Century of Women Cartoonists, 1993. That was mm-hmm. published by Kitchen Sink. Kitchen Sink. And uh, this was just you writing at the time, correct? Yes, yes. So how would you say this project was different from women and the comics? Would you say that it was just more researched? Um, tell us some of that, some of the contrast between the two. Well, it was ever so much more researched. Uh-huh. At that point, you know, we even had the Internet. I had just started using computers in 1993, but we right. had them. You know, we, nice. didn't, we didn't have what we have now, but we had something. Also, the reason that I did it was that women and the comics met a very sad fate. What happened was it was published in what, 86? Was it 86 or 85? Yeah. 85. 85, okay. Well, all the copies that had not immediately gone out to stores were stored with Eclipse's other books in the basement of the, the house where Kat and Dean lived. Yeah. And in 1986 came the great Guerneville River, Russian River flood in Guerneville. Yes. Uh, you know, and in, if you know much about the Bay Area, we do yeah. have this happen every now and then. It rains too much and the rivers flood. Okay, well, it really flooded. And right. everything in the basement was turned into basically paper mache. Yeah, so that. that was the end of women and the comics. Yes. So by 1993, I knew there was a need for another book. Uh-huh. And this time I was competent enough to do it myself. Did you pitch the 
idea to Dennis Kitchen or, or did Dennis Kitchen come to you? How'd that work? I pitched the idea to Dennis. Okay. And was Kitchen Sink in Massachusetts at this point when you pitched it to him or was it more by phone? How, how did that happen? Oh, we did it by phone. Oh. But uh, they've, aren't they still in Massachusetts? They had yeah, moved they were from in, Wisconsin. They were in, they were in, in 1993 Wisconsin. was when they first moved to Massachusetts oh, from Wisconsin. Okay. So as far as the difference is more researched, were you also able to conduct more interviews with past creators for this particular edition versus the Women in the Comics book? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I was able to find, again, thanks to the Internet, mm-hmm. I was able to find these women, many of whom are no longer with us. Oh, great. In one case, in one case Ruth Atkinson who yes. it turned yeah. out had drawn the entire first year of Patsy Walker comics. Yes. Yes. Um, in that case, she walked into a local comic book store, looked at the comics and said to the owner, I used to draw this stuff. And he got her phone number and phoned me immediately. It right. turned out she lived eight blocks away from me. Oh, that's oh, amazing. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you about Ruth Atkinson and Pauline Loth with the, the, yes. this, uh, with Miss America and, uh, and Patsy Walker and Timely in the 40s. Yes, and, uh, yes, in yes. Ni- and in 1945, Ruth Atkinson did a story about demanding equal pay, and, and it seemed like Timely was more women-friendly in their content than some of the other publishers. Is that, is that a correct Timely statement? Timely was very girl-friendly, but the story that Ruth Atkinson did was not about equal pay. It was about allowing the girls to wear pants to high school. Because in those days, the rule was you had to wear skirts. So the girls all spoke up and they said something like, you know, we are here for the liberation of all women. They really said that and wore pants to school, broke the rules. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, so I'm just curious, the the Century of Women cartoonists, did that also receive a good media reaction or did it get publicity? Oh, no, people loved it. I mean, it was the only book of its kind. There was no other place where you could find out about these women. Right. That's that's what I'm thinking. That's great. So then, three years later, you did the next book, which wasn't a history of creators book. It was called The Great Women Superheroes, also published by Kitchen Sink. Yes. That's a very different book. How did that come to be? Well, I had done a book about women cartoonists, and I felt that people needed to know about women superheroes at the time during the eighties and also the nineties, it was all guys, you know, and the women were just these kind of, you know, add on characters, the teams, the super teams would be like three guys and a girl or four guys and a girl, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I, people needed to know there had been these fabulous superheroines in the past. My feeling about this book was it it was in some ways more political in that you were talking about it in a way that like bell hooks might talk about film that it was it was uh-huh. talking about it in terms of critiquing what was happening in the nineties oh, yeah. and, and using the prior decades to show what what was there and what had been lost at, by that current time is that is that fair to Absolutely. say? Absolutely, I think that with the exception of Wonder Woman, maybe Supergirl had her own book. I'm not sure, but these women were usually part of the team. They were like the you know I say three guys and a girl, and they they didn't have their own books, and yet they had had their own books in the past. They had starred in their own books. 
Now, I also thought it was an interesting subject matter for you to take on, though, because you had said in our prior interview that you didn't have, besides Wonder Woman, you didn't, and Mary Marvel, you didn't really have a lot of connection with the superhero genre as compared to so many of the other genres that did have a lot more women in it. Did you just pick superheroes because, one, it was needed to discuss the lack of them, and also because it was going to sell easier than talking about jungle princesses and and, and stuff? (laughs) None of my books have I thought of in terms of this will sell. Yeah, I can't help it. That's why I'm so poor. Uh, But... um, (laughs) It needed to be told. I mean, it simply needed to be told. By the 90s, what you had were those horrible bad girl comics. I right. mean, the only women who started their own books were like Lady Death and, you know, these horrible, hypersexualized, softcore porn characters. Right. And did yeah. you get any pushback by the industry or by others or, or by the male infrastructure about what you're saying about comics at that time? No. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that the industry was pretty welcoming to uh, your input on it from uh, that historical perspective of the female? Well, most of the people in the in- in the industry that I spoke to or that spoke to me thought it was fine, thought it was great. Yeah, that's great. A book that I, I read of yours, I, I love it, actually, because it's almost like an alternate history, but it's actually true history, and I'm surprised no one else has talked about it from this perspective, was from Girls to Girls, a history of women's comics from teens to zines in 1999. You know, I love the book because it really, it's like the history of comics from a female perspective, and I'm surprised that it's not mentioned in other comic history books. I've read this perspective, but so how did this project come into being? Well, I'd already written histories of women cartoonists and of superheroines and I was really so sick of hearing editors say girls don't read comics and people really believed that and I knew that this was may I use the word bullshit this was bullshit yeah you know I had read comics when I was a kid and it wasn't just me I wasn't just the geeky girl in the corner who reads comics everyone my age all the kids read comics my girlfriends read comics and we would trade comics and what the girls read, I knew what the girls read because I had read them, Yeah, you know? And I knew that really what I was trying to prove was that, of course, girls read comics. When you give girls comics they like to read, girls will read comics. But if all you give them is muscular guys with big chins punching each other out, girls are not going to read comics. Right. And that it's an interesting call to diversifying the genres and comics so that all demographics can read them. And so it seems like it's become self-defeating what you st- in the book, how the direct market almost became more of a, a funnel for more of the superhero genre, and then it becomes a self-limiting, self-destructive force where then boys only read superhero comics, only superhero comics are put out, and now girls are almost edged out off the side when there was decades like in the 40s, you mentioned Archie comics being very um, attractive to female readers. And then in the 50s, romance comics attracted female readers. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition from teen comics to romance comics and why that shift occurred? Uh, romance comics started right after the war. Mm-hmm. I believe Simon and Kirby, I believe their first comic book, what was it, Young Love? 
Yeah, young love, young romance, young, young romance. one. Yeah, young love. I think. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think that started in 1947. They were just out of the war. You know, they were veterans. Right. They come home, and um, there was, you know, the teen comics were doing great. The teen comics, which were also about teenage girls, yeah. but they just decided, why don't we? Because the love magazines were did really, really well, but those were like older women, women. By older, I mean women in their 20s, you know, uh-huh. even late teens, maybe 18 or 19, were reading the romance magazines. And they said, well, why don't we do a comic? And the first one was a huge success, yes. enormous success. And, of course, what happens, you know, when one book is a success is other people start copying it. So just, you know, all of the comic publishers had their romance titles. Uh-huh. Do you feel like maybe the the teen comics readers just grew a little older and now they wanted romance comics? Is that why the industry shifted toward more romance? No, because after all, if the teen girls became a little older and were reading the romance comics, there were younger girls Uh who had just been reading like funny animals or something, and they were reading the teen comics. And the teen comics still did very well in the 50s. Yeah, like Archie did really well. Now, there's another phenomenon you mentioned, and you, you touched upon it earlier, but Katie Keene and Torchy from 1947 and the divide in how women are portrayed, you mentioned yes. that Torchy is almost more fetishy, sexy. Right. Katie Keene is more classy and sophisticated and more for like an innocent female perspective. perspective. But you evolved that. You also mentioned like Al Feldstein's Sonny in 1947 for Fox and Quality's 1947 Candy had a similar polarization. And then in the 90s, you have Lady Death versus the Real Girl comics. Why do you think this polarization exists in how women are portrayed in comics? Well, because there are always going to be guys who do comics specifically for other guys. Torchy was not really done for girls. Torchy was was a pinup comic done for, for guys. And you said something about fetishy. I mean... It was totally fetishy. Bill Ward was totally a fetish artist. He couldn't help himself, you know, that's just what he drew. So right. he had to draw those those legs with the super high heeled shoes and the and the seams on the stockings. It just was what he did. And this right. was not for teenage girls. Right. And it makes sense because he started that in the military for military guys, so it kind of yes. makes sense, right? The last thing about that about that particular book I want to mention is in the 1970s, there's almost like a crisis you mentioned in the way women are reading comics and what they're looking for because it becomes more about women's liberation. But then the mainstream comics, they, they have a hard time really connecting with that. Oh, they um, really didn't get it. So then what happens is you have Stan Lee who wrote a lot of female comics in the 40s and 50s, but then that approach didn't work in the 70s anymore. And then so you have more the rise of the independent comics coming out from a girl perspective and then romance being faded out of comics in the 70s. What was going on in women readers at the time that this would happen? Well, by the 70s, and so many of us had become feminists, the love comics, the traditional love comics were just something to laugh at because the stories they told had nothing to do with our lives, you know. Girl meets guy and is afraid he doesn't love her for some reason or other. And then it turns out he really does love her. I mean, really, these simple, simple stories and so cliched. Well, they had also become 
very much more cliched by the 70s. The, the love comics that still existed were incredibly cliched if you compare them to the earlier love comics, which right. sometimes were absolutely brilliant. Right, that's right. So now, The Great Women Cartoonist 2001. So was this essentially an update of the Century of Women Cartoonists? Were there new chapters? Was it re-edited? Tell us about that one. It was an update. In certain cases, I corrected mistakes I'd made in the first one. It was basically an update with better pictures because we had color, finally. It was a major New York publisher, and I was very excited about the fact that it was a major New York publisher. But the editor was terrible. I'll say that right now because I'm not working for her anymore. She was awful. She let a lot of, and not just her, but the copy editor actually rewrote things that I had written, thought she knew better than me. And I tried to correct them, and they were never corrected. So there are some mistakes in there that are not my mistakes, but that make me cringe. I see. But it looked good. The book looked good. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really interesting to me because I I have that book, and I was cross-comparing it with Pretty in Ink just last night. And there's a lot of difference just in any basic sentence, the way that one is phrased. And, and it's so much more specific and pretty in ink. And, and I saw where those were correct. And, and the earlier version was broader and, and incorrect in some ways. And pretty um, so that was finally got it right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now I don't have to do those books anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next that I have listed, which came out the same year as Great Women Cartoonists, was Neil Brinkley and the New Women in the Early now, 20th Century. Neil Brinkley. Now, yeah, no, Neil. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. I'm That's just my mistake. I make up. that mistake. Nell Brinkley, yeah. Nell Brinkley. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to save that and do it together with the other, the other Brinkley book. And so I want to skip that and go to, is it Canary Press? Oh. Um, no, not Canary. Con something? Con, okay. Con, it's, it's C-O-N-A-R-I. Canary. Uh, Canary. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you did three books for them in the early 2000s. One in mm-hmm. 2001, 2003, and 2004. Now, are those your first non-comic related books that you did? Well, I actually did a children's book sometime in the 90s. I if I had it right in front of me, I could take it and, and look at the publication date. It was done by 10 Speed Press, and it was called Cat's Walk. I've never heard that one. Please yep. tell us about that for Neither a minute. Neither has anybody else. They, they <laughs> must have really had bad distribution. I ran into a couple of editors for 10 Speed Press at a convention, and they said they were fans of mine, and would I like to do a children's book? And I said, yeah. So I did a children's book. It's good too. Excuse me. It's good too, but nobody knows it exists because they had awful distribution. Oh, I would love to see that. All right, so tell us about Bad Goddesses with uh, Attitude. Goddesses with Attitude. I decided I wanted to do a book on goddesses. There were books on goddesses, but not from the viewpoint that I wanted to do. And um, no one was interested until. I guess I, I found Canary Press, or they found me. I'm not sure how it worked. But by that point, I had tried other editors, 
the kind of editors I thought would be interested in goddess books, and they were all basically they wanted to make me to make it politically correct. Can you talk about the earth, and can you talk about you know the wisdom and all these very politically correct new age terms? And so I didn't want to do that. So when I finally got to do a goddess book, I said, "The hell with that! I'm going to just do outrageous goddesses, bad goddesses." So talk about some of the guys who, like, for example, uh, who? Who did you cover? Okay, well, gee, there's so many. We could even start with Isis. I don't know which one. Oh, I think I started with Inanna because, again, it was chronological to a certain degree. Inanna really is the first major goddess. And how she decides to visit her sister, who is the queen of the underworld, Erish Kigal. And Erish Kigal is so horrible. And she's so jealous of her sister who, who rules up in the sky that Inanna has to pass each of all these gates to get to finally see her sister. And at each gate, the gatekeeper takes an article of clothes away from her. So finally she winds up stark naked in front of her sister, who that doesn't satisfy her sister. She's still just so pissed off at Inanna that she strikes her dead mm. and hangs the body up on a hook in the underworld. <laughs> She's a horrible person, and these little, tiny little spirits have to help Inanna and bring her back to life by giving her the food of life and the water of life. How international was this in that, did you do Japanese and Chinese, like, did I you did. go all over the world? I did. I did Japanese. I think it was Isanagi and Isamami, if I got the names right, where she, you know, they're like the two first humans created by the gods and she gives birth she gives birth to the mountains and to the islands and you know she's the mother but then she gives birth to fire and it kills her as it would you know so she has to go to the underworld and he misses her so much he tries to get her back but unfortunately she's been in the underworld and she's eaten the food of the underworld so she's really a corpse, and she's rotting oh, and dying, and it's disgusting. And she comes after him, and he's like, oh, no, I changed my mind. Go back. You know, my, my niece recently got a tattoo of a pomegranate when she turned 18. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, did you do this because of Persephone? And she was like, I don't know who that is. And I'm like, well, that's, you have a that's his, Yeah, similar story. Similar story. I mean, really what happens with all these goddesses is they die and return, you know, and it's all tied in, of course, with the seasons. When they die, it's winter. When they return, it's spring. It's very similar. And so you go from that to women who kill, which these do as well. But this is different. Alex, what this this is your crime. (laughs) Take it away. So tell us about women who kill. Oh, you know, that's one of my favorite books that I've written. Maybe it's my very favorite books that I've written. These women are so interesting. And basically, that's what I wanted to do. Okay, I did Bad Goddesses. Now, what what interested me? Well, you know, women who kill. (laughs) Because there are very few of them are mass, are serial killers or mass murderers. And we all know about the women who kill men who you know, who, the husbands who abused them and beat them. That wasn't what I talked about because that's all too obvious. Right. But women who really do kill. And, oh, gosh, I have some winners there. You know, there's the old, the landlady from Sacramento 
who poisoned all her borders and, yes. and took their social security checks. She's still with us. <laughs> I believe she's still in prison. Yeah. Um, but she was fascinating, you know, because she seemed like such a sweet old lady. Maybe the worst of them was Belle Gunnis, the ogre of the plains. Let's see, where, where was it? It was a Midwestern town. She lived somewhere in the Midwest, and she put ads. She was, she was Scandinavian, and she put ads in the Scandinavian papers that she was looking. She was a widow. She'd already knocked off her husband, that she was looking for a husband, but that because she had a ranch and everything, they had to prove they weren't just after her for her money. They had to bring $1,000 cash with them. Wow. So. She poisons them as they come by, and she keeps the cash, of course, and buries them in the pig pen, feeds them to the pigs. Yeah. <laughs> she was the worst. She was the worst. <laughs> There's something about feeding people to the pigs. It's so graphic and awful. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. It looks like with homicide and also with suicides, the difference between men and women when they commit these things, that when men do it, they tend to be more physically violent forms. And then yes. when women do it, it's a little more subtle, like in the forms of poisons or um, taking, taking overdoses or things like that. It seems like the homicide-suicide flavors are different between these genders. Yes, I like the calling them flavors. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe men are chocolate and women are strawberry. There you go. Uh, but yes, I mean, for, well, to start with, you know, none of the women killed for the sexual pleasure of it, you know? Right. Yes. That's something that only men do. Yeah. Most of the women who killed, it was very practical. They wanted his money. Uh, usually it was because they wanted his money. Right. They had So they had better heads on their shoulders, it sounds like, during these uh, events. Wild Irish Roses was a, yeah. third, was a third of those that, that published. Yes. So let, let's, yes. let's be well, complete and hear that one, too. What, well, what was I, I, I'm a Celtophile. I'm not. I'm not as actively a Celtophile as I was when I wrote the book. But I, I am a Celtophile. I'm fascinated with not just Irish history, but really all Celtic history. But I had to narrow it down to one, one nationality, and I made it Irish. I've traveled a lot in Ireland and Scotland and in the English countryside, and I love it. I love their history. I love their mythology. So, I love Ireland, too. It's, it's yes. my favorite place to go. It's so beautiful. And my partner and I, in traveling in Ireland, we've, we've always looked for the mystic stuff, for the stone circles and the standing stones. Oh, nice. uh-huh. and, you know, just wandering at one point, a farmer told us, he said, I'll let you in on a secret. I've got a standing stone in that meadow over there. I don't tell the government because then they'll just come rushing in, you know, and, and just disturb, you know, my beautiful farm. Uh, but we went and found the standing stone. And another time there was a stone circle in the middle of this pasture. And after we had found this, this stone circle, uh, suddenly we were set upon by a herd of angry cows and we, you know, we just, we just got, got over the fence just in time. That's a great story. That's, I don't know why that reminds me of uh, the Mel Brooks movie uh, Spaceballs where there was a planet Druidia and then when they talked about the Druish princess, uh, John Candy says, that's funny, she doesn't look Druish. Doesn't look, so. look Jewish, Druish, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah, I thought that was funny. So the next, uh, the next book, uh, you know, Jim caught me on to this, Forbidden City, The Golden Age of Chinese Nightclubs, 2009. Uh, what a fascinating topic. 
So was this inspired by Sax Romer's Dope? Is, is that? Not at all. It was Not just your own thing. Okay, tell us about that. Well, some of these women were in my dance class. Oh. These beautiful Chinese women, older, older women, but really just beautiful and always wore makeup and, and were fabulous dancers. Yeah. And I finally found out that they had danced. The only nightclub I knew at that time was the Forbidden City. And one of them told me, yes, we used to dance at the Forbidden City. Uh-huh. And in fact, it's funny because I told my daughter, she thought I was talking about the ancient Chinese, the one in China, the Forbidden City. I said, wow, these women in my, in my dance class danced at the Forbidden City. And she said, good grief, how old are they? <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so they invited me to one of their performances because, of course, the nightclub scene had died. It, it died by the early 60s, really. But they had formed a dance group called the Grant Avenue Follies, and they performed for charity. They performed all over the place, and they were great. They were great, you know, because when you've danced all your life, you're still a great dancer. It doesn't matter how old you are. Right. It's part Um, part of it, yeah. So I went to see the performance, and I was hooked. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to do a book about you. And they didn't believe me. So I took them each one at a time, took them out for lunch and taped them. Um, Oh, nice. And Uh they told me about even older women, you know, who who had danced in the 40s. Yeah, before that. uh, And gave me phone numbers. And most of them were perfectly willing to be interviewed. There was one woman who had been a stripper. And she was shy. She she never let me interview her, which was too bad, you know. Uh Uh Uh, But I interviewed these women and... And a lot of guys, too, you know, yeah. and, and was able to borrow and scan in their photos of, you know, beautiful, beautiful women with dark red lipstick and pompadour haircuts and, and men in, in tuxedos, you know, just so suave. And a lot of them, most of them, the older ones have since passed away. There's very passed few. Away. Yeah. So I'm really, really, really glad that yeah. I got to interview them when I yeah. did. And for background for the listeners, it's about Chinese nightclubs in San Francisco from the 30s to the 60s. Something mentioned in there that I want to just bring up is that a lot of the Oriental or Asian entertainers were then compared to Caucasian counterparts, like the Chinese Fred Astaire or something and like that. the Chinese Frank Sinatra, yes. Yeah, the Chinese Betty Grable, because she had great legs. But of course, they all had great legs. <laughs> that's so great and that even um old uh, hollywood celebrities would actually go there and uh, enjoy an evening there oh yes oh yes they showed me photos of you know sitting at a table with boris karloff with bing crosby oh wow uh, with Bob hope you know this one one photo i think of of uh, jadine wong who was the queen of the nightclubs with humphrey bogart and lauren bacall uh-huh wow that's great that's amazing Okay, so so going back to comics, the last book that you wrote comic-related before doing this series of books that we're, we're talking about, have been talking about, was Nell Brinkley and the New Women in the Early 20th Century. Yes. And the, the next book you did after doing Forbidden City was The Brinkley Girls. So both yeah, before and after you're doing mm-hmm. Brinkley. Could you tell us first... Tell us about Brinkley so that we, we as the oh, audience knows. Well, you know, of all the women that I researched, she was just the most immediately likable. You didn't have to kind of get into it and say, oh, yeah, I, 
I can see that style is very old-fashioned, but I think I could I could understand it. Not with Bringley. I mean, she, you look at her stuff and you're just, you're stunned. You're yeah. stunned. She was so, and the thing is, she was so well-known. She was so famous and she had so many fans, but she was forgotten because nobody wrote about her, which is, wow. you know, my big discovery in writing all of these books is that if if you're not written about, you're forgotten. And That's these right. women have been forgotten because when guys write books about comics, write histories, they want to talk about Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, maybe throw in a little Steve Ditko. So for me, the most obvious, oh, 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 there's a, wait, wait, there was a reason not just that she was so incredible, but that, okay, 19, I think it was 96, you know, and I was still new to computers and the internet was still a very new thing. Yeah. And someone forwarded me an email saying my mother, who has since passed away, was a big Nell Brinkley fan and just and saved her work and has even written about her. And, you know, my mo- she's passed away now, and I would like to give all of this literature, all of this, her collection, to someone who knows about Nell Brinkley. And right. I, I immediately answered. I said, I know Nell Brinkley. I've written about her. And I have to tell you that if you want money, I can't pay a lot because I'm a writer and writers are poor. And she emailed me back and said, I wouldn't dream of charging you. I just want you to take it. And she, okay, okay, this was the internet. She could have been anywhere in the world, right? She was about a 20-minute drive away from where I live. And she came over and delivered this huge stack of scrapbooks with, with original, not original work, but original comic pages, very neatly placed in plastic, not, not pasted down or anything awful like that. And this would have been images you've never seen, probably? Oh, yeah. Because how much can one see? And I just, at the time, I was working on another project, the project before that. But then I just sat down, surrounded with all this stuff, and went through it and went, oh, my God, this is a book. Now, what is the difference between the two books, the one that you edited in 2009 and the earlier one in 2001? See, that was from McFarland, the earlier one. And it was it was much it was smaller in size. It wasn't smaller in, in information. And it was black and white. So oh, I was really no, limited. No. Oh yeah. So I was really limited to only showing showing her black and white work and also because she did work for newspapers and the work was so big, in many cases I just had to extract one part of the illustration to show. But it was all there was for Nell Brinkley. And um, it's still in print. And it's, you know, I even still get small royalty checks. So obviously people are buying it. And one reason they're buying it is because they can't get the full color coffee table book that Fantagraphics published because it's out of way out of print. And Fantagraphics is not reprinting it. And uh, if you look for it on Amazon, it's they want so much that it's really ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That, that seems almost criminal to me. I've given this book out to four of my nieces. I can't keep it. I'll keep this one. Oh, no, everyone loves it. 
I think it's your most beautiful book. I mean, it is. Just be- That's because she was so beautiful. Her work mm-hmm. was so beautiful. That's great. And it's so important historically. Do you know why it's not in print? Gary Groth, the publisher, has he has a problem with with reprinting books. He says, "Well, they've they've sold really well, but but what about the next time? You know, will it sell ten thousand copies, or will it only sell three hundred? You know, it's a gamble." However, my next book that I'm about to start is for Fantagraphics, and it's on the flapper cartoonists. And there were ah, there were a lot of women, but specifically there were three who did huge, beautiful, full color Sunday pages, and Brinkley is one of them. So people who have just been agonizing because they couldn't find the Brinkley book for under you know four hundred dollars can will be able to buy the Flapper cartoonist, which has a lot, a lot of beautiful full color Mel Brinkley work. And nice. when is that coming out? I haven't even started it yet, but oh. I did promise, I'm about to start it. I did promise Gary that I would have it finished by 2020. Nice, okay. And, and was there a reason that you took off most of the, um, from 2001 to almost the end of the decade, where you weren't doing comic-related books? I wasn't. Well, the, the history books, you were writing other things instead. Were you taking a break from comics history at that point? I would have my books with me. Can you tell me what was the next book I published after that? What I'm saying is, like, you did the Brinkley book in 2001, mm-hmm. and you, did, you didn't work in comics history, at least you didn't publish in comics history for almost that full decade until 2009 when you edited the, the new Brinkley book. When did I do the Miss Fury books? The Sunday volumes are 2011 to 2013. Oh, okay. I guess you're right. So I was doing other stuff, other books, I guess. Okay. The ones that we just talked about. <laughs> and Alex, that's your lead, Miss so, Fury. Now, you edited the two volumes of Sundays. Let's talk about Tarpe Mills and Miss mm. Fury. For the audience, it's a, a Sunday's collection of Miss Fury, female <laughs> comic hero dressed in black leopard outfit, working in South America against Nazis in the 1940s. Tarpe Mills, a creative woman who made the strip. Tell us about your work on the project. Well, you know, one of the more fascinating things is, is how women will turn themselves into the main characters of the strip. They'll identify so much oh. that the main character is them. Uh-huh. Tarpe Mills... Tarpe Mills looked exactly like Miss Fury. And she even gave Miss Fury a pet cat. That was Tarpe Mills' cat. Tarpe Mills had a white Persian cat named Perry Purr. And Miss Fury had a white Persian cat named Perry Purr. So women really, and and she's not the only one who has identified Mm. with her character like that. Uh, Dale Messick, who drew Brenda Starr, dyed her hair a really, really bright shade of orange to match her character's hair. She she basically, she didn't turn the character in her, to herself. She turned herself into the character. And she was dressed to kill, too, you know. And Brenda Starr was very fashionable. Yeah. And the book that I have just completed for Hermes Press, which will be coming out in the fall, is about Gladys Parker, who drew Two, well, the first strip she did was, was in the 20s called Flapper Fanny, but after that she drew Mopsy, 
who was her main character and who she identified with most, and she was the spitting image of Mopsy. She looked exactly like her character. Mm. So this is something that women do. Men don't. That's interesting. Yeah, because you mentioned I mean, that in your in your teens to zines book that like women's comics, nineteen seventy four was sort of a birth of autobiographical graphic novels, and that and you you quote in there or you have a quote in there that women love to share confidences and they put themselves in their stories a lot. Um, I thought that was a really interesting pattern. You noticed that I never thought of it that way, but I can see that. I can see what you're saying. Well, you know, like Milton Kniff did not look like Steve Canyon. Right. You know. <laughs> That's right. He did not. All right. And then and then another thing about um is uh okay, so we talked a bit about Pretty in Ink 2013 being this ultimate update to your women cartoonist book, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the the women you highlight in there Rose O'Neill's comic strip, The Old Subscriber Calls and yes! a native and right and a Native American woman cartoonist from the 1940s who was a woman's army corporal, Ethel Hayes, Edwin Adum, Lily Renee, so how was it, you know, researching these women, finding out about them, putting it all together? Was it just a, a constant sense of discovery? Tell us about, about getting all this information. It was a sense of discovery, yes. Yeah. Sometimes I do believe that there's a, a comics goddess who steps in every now and then. Because the old subscriber calls by Rose O'Neill is generally, unless we find make another incredible find, is generally accepted as the earliest comic drawn by a woman, 1896. And the way I found that is, don't tell me there's no goddess in there somewhere working with me, because there was a, a sidewalk sale right around the corner from where I live. This guy had set up a bunch of things that he was selling on his front steps, and some of them... I think there were about maybe four or five issues, maybe four, of a magazine from the late 19th century called Truth. And I happened to know from my research that Grace Drayton had drawn for Truth and that possibly Nell Brinkley had also drawn for Truth. And they were $5 each. I bought them, and I brought them home, and I looked through them, and look at that. There's a comic strip by Rose O'Neill, the old wow. subscriber calls from 1896. And that is, as I say, accepted generally as the earliest known comic strip by an American woman cartoonist. Which is, which is incredible because a lot of times people start out with the yellow kid and, and they yeah. talk about the 1890s. Well, you know, the is 1896 too, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's, that's what I mean is that women were part of comics from essentially – year one or, or day one or however way we want to look at it. And, and I think that's an incredible thing that everyone should realize. Yes. Even going further back, Alex, a little bit, if you take into account uh, European comics, because there was Marie Duval um, yes. doing Ally Sloper in mm-hmm. uh, 1867. Trina does say American when she does yes. that, which is... Yes, I had to limit myself for it. You know, it would have been an encyclopedia. Yes. So I limited myself to American. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, it's true. Grace Drayton, some of her comics, beautiful Sunday pages from like 1902 and 1903. I mean, this is some of her earliest work, and it's wonderful. God, she was so good. Wow. 
So now, one of the people I mentioned, and Jim's going to talk about this one, is Lily Renee. So go ahead and take it away, Jim. Yes. Yes, this is a different book. Lily Renee, Escape Artist from Holocaust Survivor to Comic Book Pioneer, is different from anything else you did. Please tell us all about that. It's a graphic novel. It's a graphic novel. Well, Lily, again, thanks to the Internet, I received an email from, I can't remember what year it was, but from Lily Renee's daughter. And of course I knew about Lily. I'd written about her in my books, but I had no idea she was still with us. I didn't really know anything about her except that she had drawn these wonderful comics. And we're we're into comic books now. And I got an email from Lily's daughter saying, well, I knew my mother had drawn comics, so I thought I would look on the internet, Google her and see what I could find. And your name kept popping up. And I just... Even to hear from her daughter, I was so excited, I just screamed. I ran to my partner. I said, I just got an email from Lily Renee's partner, daughter, excuse me. And so then I said, well, what can you tell me about your mother? And she said, well, I'll let my mother tell you. Here's her phone number. And that meant, oh, my God, she's still with us. So I think it's been at least 10 years, hasn't it? Well, since since your book. Yeah, you no, I, I don't think so. I'll, I'll tell you when it is, but I, I don't it's believe it's been that long. Anyway, I was writing at that point, I was writing graphic novels for young readers for a publishing company called Learners. And uh, I had a wonderful editor who unfortunately left the company, but I, I adore her and I would write for any publication she worked for. And I, I just told her the Lily Renee story because when I spoke to Lily and Lily told me that she had, you know, been this talented Jewish teenager in Vienna. And then what happens is the Nazis march in in 1938 and she escapes to England in 1939 and having to leave her parents behind, not knowing when, if they're dead or alive, her parents not knowing she's in England, but not knowing anything else. And they escape to America and they find her. And she comes to America, and they're living hand-to-mouth with a bunch of other refugees in this tenement building. And she gets a job for Fiction House drawing comics. Right. And she's wonderful. She's so great. And just talking with Lily, with her wonderful Viennese accent. Okay. <laughs> Lily is still with us. She is 98 years old. Yeah. And in a month, in less than a month, in, in about two weeks... She is flying, being flown to Vienna, and we are flying to Vienna too, my partner and I, because the Jewish Museum in Vienna is having an exhibit of her work. Oh, wow. After This is the city that wanted to kill her, wanted to send her to a concentration camp and kill her, except that yeah. she escaped. Yeah. And now they're honoring her with this exhibit. Amazing. And they're showing, I have 11 pages of Lily's original art. Oh. And I lent them to that for the exhibit. And oh. this is probably more pages of Lily's art than anyone else has. Are you going to take so a lot of pictures of this exhibit, Trina? Please I tell us you will. I am taking lots of pictures and putting them all up on Facebook. Oh, nice. So I was at San Diego Comic-Con when you were promoting this book, and I went to the panel of the two of you with you introducing her to us to a lot of people that probably had no idea who she was in that room. And it was probably, I've been 25 years to Comic 
done. It's one of my favorite panels or favorite experiences I ever had there was the sense of history of you sitting next to her and y'all talking about comics. It was one And about her life. Yes. It was beautiful. Did you do very much of that? How many did y'all travel to different conventions or was that the only one that you appeared at together? Um, together, no. We we went there was a museum in New York at the time called MOCA, M-O-C-C-A. And uh-huh. they were having an exhibit a lot of including a lot of my work of women cartoonists. And I went and first I visited with Lily and interviewed her. And then we went on to the to the museum and have a talk there. It was wonderful. And she was wonderful. I bought the, the, the poster she was selling. It's autographed. I have it hanging in my, my room. It's, it's oh, just great. So, yes, absolutely. That had to be one of the, a special moment for you, too, I would imagine, amongst oh, all God, your convention yes. appearances. Yes. And then I think, you know, time flies. I think it might have been about five years ago that Lily was visiting. She has... Her son lives in San Diego, and she decided she would like to come to the convention. And so he emailed me. He said, Lily would like to come to the San Diego Con. So I quickly got in touch with Jackie Estrada. And, you know, of course, they arranged everything so that, you know, she wouldn't have to wait online or anything horrible like that. That's nice. And and she came. She was in a wheelchair. And her wonderful son and, and her grandsons, who were just darling, and her her uh, daughter-in-law, they all came with her, of course. And But I took her around, you know, and it was so cool. These were people. I introduced her to people who knew who she was, you know, uh-huh. but they were totally just blown out. And I said, you know, this is Lily Renee. And they went, oh, my God. <laughs> Maggie Thompson. Uh, you know who Maggie Thompson oh, is? Oh, yeah, She's, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, I ran into her at the convention. I was with Lily at the point. That point, Lily was was with her, I guess, with her uh, grandsons. But I knew where they were. They were still at the table. And I saw Maggie, and I just grabbed her. I said, quick, come with me, and brought her over. And I said, Lily Renee, you know. And <laughs> when I introduced her to Sergio Aragonas, he knelt down and kissed her hand. I mean, it was wonderful. That's great. So, Trina, it does look like this was in 2011. Mm-hmm. So around the same time that the uh, Miss Fury book came out was yes. when this was released. Uh-huh. Okay, so now we're going to Last Girl Standing 2017. You wrote your autobiography, which is a great book because you really start from – you go from start to finish. What made you decide to write an autobiography at this juncture? I've been wanting to do it for a while. For one thing, there's so much misinformation about me out there. Uh And I'm really tired of correcting the misinformation. Right. So I decided I would just tell my story. And Gary Groth loved the idea. By the way, I love that man. I told him, last time I I emailed him, I told him I would go to war for him. Oh, that's nice. So we talked uh, about your autobiography last episode but just some little finagling questions so Forrest Ackerman you were a friend of his and it was interesting in that he you know he was a science fiction guy and you were a science fiction fan as well and that he was doing magazines that had some some nude women in them and you had gotten involved with that in some way tell us about that experience and your impression of Forrest from going through that 
I don't think that he did do any magazines with nude women. We're talking about the girly mags. Right, the girly mags. That's what I meant. They were not flurries, no. But he's, he kind of convinced me somehow that if I were to post for the men's magazines, I would become famous like Marilyn Monroe, and yeah. I'd be a famous actress, and he would be my agent. Uh-huh. And I was, you know, like 19, so, <laughs> so I believed him. Uh-huh. And then what did something happen or a conversation or something that you realized that it was not correct or, or just tell us about like thinking out of that and that process? Well, really, the thing is that at that point, you know, as a 19 year old, I'd had a whole series of really disastrous boyfriends uh-huh. who had who had really managed to destroy my self-esteem. Uh-huh. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't have faith in myself and didn't know that I was very smart and very talented, but I knew I had my looks and it seemed like that was all I had. I see. Yeah, so this is it's somewhat um transformative in a way. Then last episode you mentioned your friendship with Von Baudet and that he wasn't in the boys club of underground cartoonists. You know, I've learned quite a bit about Von Baudet since then and he had a different gender expression than other guys in the comic industry or definitely yeah would you say that was a part of him not being in that boys club Uh, and tell us about your guys' friendship so because you know the boys club was very very male extremely Uh male and vaughn would wear like long robes and he had this wonderful curly rock and roll star hair you know down to his shoulders Uh and painting his nails black or green and you know he was definitely heterosexual but he he liked to play with gender, you know, and yeah. he looked great that way. The guys, and it wasn't just that. It was, you know, what he did was very different from what the underground cartoonists were, the other underground cartoonists were drawing. And he just wasn't part of the club, and I wasn't part of the club either, you know. Yeah, right. Interesting. And then um, evidently, did you know about him and uh Jeff Jones before it was Catherine Jeff Jones and how they actually had an interest in the same woman and both of them had like a gender expression that are different from other people. Oh, certainly. Do do, do you know about that? I didn't know know that they were both interested in the same woman. Who was that? Do I know her? her I don't know her name, but there was a Jeff Jones documentary you may like. I think it's called The Life and Choices of Jeff Jones. You can get it on DVD on on eBay for like $17. (laughs) But um, it's really fascinating. You may like it, but they like the same woman. And something happened where that woman then goes from Bon Baudet to Jeff Jones. And then a lot of Jeff Jones's later 70s paintings and things are based on her and what's fascinating is during this transition there's a lot of high emotions going on between all three and i don't know if that factored in when von bode died but around that time is when jeff jones gets notified that von bode had died in the way he did and that it was a very devastating emotional highs and lows and i was just devastating to all of us were you shocked when you heard about his death of course i was shocked Mm mm-hmm I mean, he was, what, 33? Yeah, really young. Yep. Okay, last question, and this is more of a a fan question. It's a little, it's in your autobiography, but um, Jim Morrison, you actually uh, knew Jim Morrison. Tell us a little bit about that. You'll have to read the book. (laughs) Yeah, I highly recommend it for everybody. It's a fantastic book. Next one is, next book that Jim's going to talk about, Babes in Arms, Women in Comics during World War II. Yes, now this is almost, it seems like this is a longer version of 
one of the chapters in your women cartoonist book. Is that fair to say, or is that right? yes, it is? Because I felt that I needed to show much more and to tell much more about the wonderful phenomenon of what happened during World War II, when, as you know, in every industry, in the factories, everywhere, women stepped in to take the jobs that the men had left when they went off to fight the war. And so they were doing things that women had never done before. You know, they were building planes and and ships and in, in many cases flying the planes, driving trucks and buses, doing things women had never done before. And the same thing happened in the comics industry. The guys were all fighting the war and suddenly, and I'm talking comic books now, not not newspapers, yes. because the comic books had been very male. They'd been very, you know, young superhero stuff, early superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. Very male. Suddenly, women were drawing for the comic books, and what they drew was very different from what the men drew, which is so interesting. They were drawing heroines. They were mm-hmm. drawing beautiful, smart, competent women who fought the Nazis, you know, and who, who could take care of themselves and didn't need to be rescued by some guy, which... Before that, you know, the role of women in comics, they've been girlfriends of the superheroes who get Mm -hmm. tied up and rescued. Mm -hmm. So talk about some of the women that that when you were first writing, not this book so much as the chapter that this book is, is partly derived from. But, like, were there discoveries that you made in terms of, of some of these women and their their connections or their roles, or even that they were women? Were you surprised to find out? Because some of these were not advertised necessarily as women while they were working, correct? Um, no, actually not true. In Fiction House, the women who worked for Fiction House signed their names. Lily Renee's work is usually signed L. Renee, Fran Hopper simply signed her work Fran Hopper. There was no secret about the fact that they were women. Maybe sometimes they would use an initial. I think Barbara Hall called herself B. Hall. Uh, I was thinking of that one. Yeah. But Pauline Loth, well, of course, she drew for a girls' magazine, Miss America. But it was, you know, everyone knew that it was Pauline Loth. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a quick question about Babes in Arms. So it's interesting, just for the listeners, is a lot of people think about Rosie the Riveter and women going into manufacturing during World War II. But it's interesting you highlight that there was a need for women comic people or, or people to fill in those spots. And so, that, and so there's a whole slew of women that you highlight in the comic industry. And I think a lot of people should realize that. But what comes along with the whole slew of women is a whole slew of women comic book heroines because that's what they drew. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Now, with Girl Commandos, I, I had a question which relates to uh, – that's a wonderful s- strip. I a, a love wonderful Girl comic. Commandos. Yeah, they're great. They're great. When Robert Crumb uses – does a title in, in saying Girl Commandos, was that meant to be disrespectful or was he even aware of that, that comic? Oh, I don't Did you think say he was even – I don't think he was aware of Girl Commandos. I don't think so. Okay. Oh, so it's just a coincidence. Now, you knew the creators, or were you friends with her daughter? Um, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. I was friends with Barbara Hall's daughter, Lady Bell, and she said, my mom used to draw comics. And I said, really? And, you know, I just still didn't think, I thought, well, maybe she drew a comic once. <laughs> and then I spoke to her, and I found out not only has she drawn Girl Commandos, but she had drawn Black Cat. 
which is, you know, like a major historical comic character. Yes. So one of the things I'm getting from this conversation, which is interesting, is how how much a historian depends on luck to a certain degree, that you have come across in your work amazing connections that were, yes. that provided so much of your material just by good fortune and nothing else. Yes, that's what I chalk up to the comic goddess. <laughs> <laughs> and then... I think that's everything you have currently currently published in terms of, of nonfiction and, and non-direct comic books themselves. Did we miss anything? No, there's the Gladys Parker book that's coming out yes. in the fall. Yes, it's called Gladys Parker, A Life in Comics, A Passion for Fashion. Because besides drawing this comic strip, Mopsy, which uh-huh. she was most identified with, she drew it. From 1937 until 1965, she died the year after that. She also, throughout the 1930s, she had a line of clothing. Very successful fashion designer who had drew and sold beautiful high-end dresses and high-end department stores. And by 1940, she moved to Hollywood and was designing clothes for movie stars like Barbara Stanwyck and Hedy Lamarr. So mm-hmm. it's a really, I of all the women that I have written about, she's the one I wish I could have lunch with. Yeah. That's oh, that's great. interesting. So with your experience in fashion and clothing, because you were actually um, doing, you were yes. in, in clothing uh, tailoring uh, and retail, and you designed clothes for different people in different mediums and uh, different rock bands and things. So is that always kind of in the back of your mind when you're looking at a, a comic page, the fashion design that's going oh, on on the yes. page? Uh-huh. Oh, yes. And, you know, I have noticed, you know, in just checking out historical comics, comics history, that women pay so much more attention to the clothes than men. Yeah. You know, yeah. There are exceptions. Like Katie Keene is a real exception. You know, yeah. but of course, Bill Wagen interpreted designs that had been sent to him by fans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, Bill Wagen, yeah, when he was doing Katie Keene and doing those fashion tips, do you feel like that makes him somewhat, Bill Wagen, I guess, for Katie Keene, do you feel like that makes him somewhat unique as far as male comic creators and looking at fashion? Is that kind of a rare thing? In the, in the Wagen was very, extremely unique. What he did was so unique, uh-huh. you know, design taking designs that had been sent to him by readers. I can tell you that I am in a class. I'm taking a class that is all seniors like me. Uh Um, And we got into a discussion, men and women, we got into a discussion about the old comics that they had liked. Like our teacher said, he loved the little king. Remember the little king? Okay. And we brought up. Love that. Yeah, yeah, well, my teacher loved it, too. We brought up the comics we had liked as a kid, and somebody said Katie Keene, and all of the women went, oh, yes, Katie Keene. You know, people, girls loved it. Girls loved it, and one woman even said, they should bring it back. (laughs) Well, that's great. So, Trina, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really riveting, and we covered everything we wanted to cover we're enormous fans of yours, and what I think I, I personally enjoy, and I think Jim does too, is how frank 
and how forthcoming you are with all this wonderful information, and you've done so much research on comic history. I think it's fair to say that you are the goddess of comic history, because what you're doing for comic history, it's unmatched. I'm really happy that we've come to know more about you and that you've taken the time to hang out with us uh, these past couple episodes. Really, I look up to you personally, and we're just such huge fans of your work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and now I'm going to lunch. (laughs) Have a good lunch. All right. Thank you, Trina. Thank you, Trina. Thank you, Trina. 